If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it to 1 Timothy chapter number 1. 1 Timothy is right in front of 2 Timothy. That should help you uh, find it pretty easily. Um, it is page 1111, 1111 in my Bible, which is kind of cool. Uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time there. Um, if you are new tonight or new, uh, you know, tonight in a long time, first time or long time, either way, uh, we have been reading through the New Testament together as a church. If you'd like to join us in that, I'd love to give you a copy of our Bible reading plan, or it is also on our website. You can check that out. It's got it broken down uh, for the rest of the year, what we're reading and, and journeying through in Scripture together. Nonetheless, during our midweek Bible study time, we take something from the letter that we're reading in, and we discuss it together. So uh, looking forward to that tonight. Uh, we finished reading the letter to the Hebrews recently, and we have started reading the first letter of Paul to Timothy, also known as 1 Timothy, or as some like to say, 1 Timothy. I I don't know where first came from. Maybe it's just one. I don't know. But anyway, uh, by Monday of next week, we'll have read this entire letter. We'll start in 2 Timothy and then move on to some other things. But tonight, I want us to spend a little bit of time in 1 Timothy. And uh, probably even next week, we might spend a little bit more time in 1 Timothy because I don't want us to miss some of the things that Paul is communicating to us there. I did get challenged uh, by a group that I ate breakfast with on a lot of Friday mornings. They wanted me to do something from 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'll let you try to decide if you're reading with us or current. I'll let you try to decide what challenging passage of Scripture they wanted me to talk about. But thankfully, for all you men and ladies in the room, we're not going to discuss uh, that particular text tonight. So if you have questions about 1 Timothy chapter 2 as it pertains to men or women and their roles in church life, uh, you can talk to Jeffrey Bird. He'd love to give you uh, exactly what that text means that Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So uh, anyway, we're going to spend a little bit of time in 1 Timothy. I'm just kidding. Didn't mean to throw you under the bus, Jeffrey. I apologize for that. First uh, and 2 Timothy, you may not know this, or you may, or you may not care. They are probably my two most favoritest books uh, of the New Testament. Now, it could be because of the content or the context, maybe, but probably uh, they're my favorite because they're written from one pastor to another pastor. The Apostle Paul is writing to the pastor at this time in Ephesus by the name of Timothy, his young protege that he discipled himself. Nonetheless, I want to give you a little history as we look at a portion of this letter together tonight. Now, the context of this letter seems to be the church at Ephesus. Yes, I know it's to an individual, but that individual probably at the time of this writing is the pastor of First Baptist Church, Ephesus. Now, Paul visited, I'm just kidding about the First Baptist part. Paul visited the city briefly at the end of his second missionary journey, and he left two of his colleagues, you've probably heard of them before, Aquila and Priscilla. He left them there in order to continue to grow the church until Paul would return again. Paul made Ephesus the major site of his evangelistic activity during his third missionary journey. So whatever time passed, and Paul did eventually uh, spend some time there. Now for three months, he preached in the synagogue, and in, in, in other words, where the, uh, the Jews had worship, and apparently he made a number of Jewish converts while he was there. Then when he was thrown out of the synagogue, they had finally had enough of whatever he was talking about, that he concentrated on reaching the Gentiles for the next two years. So lots of Jewish converts stirred up enough trouble, then began spreading the gospel outside of uh, the, the Jewish uh, uh, faith and started seeing non-Jews come to faith in Jesus. Now, 
At that particular time, you can read more about it in Acts chapter 19, but a tremendous revival broke out accompanied by all kinds of signs and all kinds of wonders. Luke uh, records it like this in Acts 19 verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So as he's doing ministry there, lots of people um, are getting saved and revival is breaking out in the city of Ephesus. Now, according to what we know from Acts during this time, Demetrius, that was the name of of one of the uh, silversmiths in the area, along with others, instigated a citywide riot against Paul and the believers in the church at Ephesus. The silversmiths, you know, j- just so you understand their context a little bit, they made images of the goddess Diana or Artemis, depending on which way you want to look at it, who had a pagan temple in Ephesus that attracted a large number of tourists. Well, at this time, so many different people are turning to Christ that the sales of the images were failing and the craftsmen became hostile. In other words, one of their most primary sources of business, no one worshiped the false God anymore. So they're all worshiping Jesus. They can't sell any of their stuff. And so they want to get rid of Paul. They want to get rid of the church. They want their business to begin booming again. Well, after he's run out of town, Paul leaves Ephesus and he heads to Macedonia. Short time later, on his way to Jerusalem, the apostle met with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. He urged them to continue his work and defend the faith. Even later beyond this, during his first Roman imprisonment, Paul wrote his epistle to the church of Ephesus. So if Ephesus sounds familiar, it should. We have an entire letter written to the church there called Ephesians. Now, evidently, the church there continued Paul's evangelism efforts even after he was gone because new churches had sprung up in surrounding communities such as Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossae, Hierapolis. All of those are believed to have come from the church at Ephesus. In other words, Paul planted a church in Ephesus, saw people come to know Christ. He is gone and that church, even without the leadership of Paul, continues to multiply and plant churches in other areas. By the way, that should not sound unique. That was the model that Jesus put in place, a church being birthed and then planting and multiplying more churches. And so clearly that's happening. After being released from his first imprisonment, Paul had Ephesus on his mind. Evidently, he wanted to go there himself, but other concerns took priority. So what did he do? Why are we talking about all this history? Well, here's why. Because he could not go, he sent Timothy, a young man that he loved, to Ephesus, a city that he loved. And we get the letter of 1 Timothy. Now, in the first chapter of the letter of 1 Timothy, we find Paul telling Timothy some very important words of wisdom as he pastors the church at Ephesus. Timothy, in this particular context, this setting, was dealing with a group of people who were in total darkness. One of the most important facts to know about Ephesus is that it was a hub for pagan worship, for worshiping false gods. Timothy was dealing with some of the deepest darkness from hell itself. He was truly up against the forces of the evil one. So in order for Timothy to get these people to begin to consider Jesus as God, he had to break the barriers of what they had always known. He had to bring them down a specific journey in which Paul explains in the first chapter of 1 Timothy. Now to help begin this conversation, I want to share with you a simple story. 
There was a woman traveling by train across the prairies in sub-zero weather with her child. The woman kept on nervously looking about her, worried about missing her stop. The conductor assured her that he would see her off the train at the right stop. And a fellow traveler, a salesman, also tried to reassure her. I travel this line frequently, lady, he said. I know every station and whistle stop. If the conductor forgets, I'll make sure you get off at the right place. Soon the salesman said, yours will be the next stop. After a while, the train came to a halt. There was no sign of the conductor. This is where you get off, lady. I'll help you out with your bags. It was dark and snowing hard, and there was no one in sight. The fellow passenger assured the frightened woman, they'll have heard the train. They'll be along in a minute. This has to be your stop. So he climbed back on board as the train pulled away, and several minutes later, the conductor came through the car. Where's the lady with the child, he asked. I helped her off at the last stop, said the salesman. That was her stop, and you didn't tell her. That wasn't a station, cried the conductor. We were held up by a signal. There are no houses for miles around. So the, the engineer stopped the train. He backed it up. They found the woman and her child frozen to death. They were victims of false information. I don't know if this story is true, but it is certainly a tragedy. Would you not agree? I read that story and I thought to myself, there are so many people in our world, so many people in our community believing lies. People who don't know the truth, they're receiving false information. How many have followed false teachings and have been left, just like this woman and her child, cold, frozen, maybe even dead? And you say, Danny, why are you bringing that up? Because we're the ones who need to make sure that every day we're living the gospel so that people can know Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Now listen, I know what you're thinking. We're in an area that's a little bit different than Ephesus, and I would agree with you. But I would say that just like Ephesus, we are in an area with just as much confusion the people in Ephesus were confused because of the different things that they were being taught. And some of our people may be as well because of false religions and different teachings. But more than likely, people in our day are confused not just because of different things being taught, but because of different things being seen. We tell people what it means to be a Christian, but then we live differently from what we're saying. Let that sink in for just a moment. We have a word for that. It's called hypocrisy. So I believe what Paul wrote to Timothy way back then is still extremely vital for us today. I want to point out to you three important truths that Paul shares with Timothy when it comes to impacting the city of Ephesus for Jesus. Let's walk through them really quick. Here's the first one. If you have an outline on the back of your uh, midweek, you're welcome to use it. Here's what I believe, first of all, that Paul shares with Timothy on impacting the city of Ephesus for Jesus. He wants us and our community, he wants us to represent the gospel of Jesus. If you're in 1 Timothy, we're going to start reading in verse number 3. Here's what Paul writes. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 
The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now I want to pause here. Because clearly there are people teaching something different than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul mentions the same thing in various other places. Ephesus is not the only place that's experiencing people teaching something other than the gospel of Jesus. Matter of fact, here's what he wrote to the church in Galatia. He said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to what he calls a different gospel, right? This is happening everywhere. Jesus comes in, people are saved, and then other people, imposters come in trying to steal the work that God is doing. Now, one of my favorite commentary writers, his name is John Stott. He writes in particular about two different historical documents that Paul might be addressing with the phrase in 1 Timothy chapter 1, myths and endless genealogies. What could Paul be referring to? Well, one thing could be these two different books. The first one's called the Book of Jubilees. The second one is called the Biblical Antiquities of Philo. Now, Danny, why are you mentioning these? Because both of these books add to the original text of the Bible. Each book makes claims about portions of the Old Testament that aren't included in the Bible at all. By the way, this still happens in our day. I'll give you one simple example although there are many. We now have a new portion of the Bible that some people claim is a new revelation from Jesus. You would know this called the Book of Mormon, right? There are plenty of different occasions where people have tried to add to what Christ has already done. Add to the gospel. Add to the Bible. Add to what we need to be doing and thinking and talking about when it comes to our faith in Jesus. Paul could be referring to documents such as that. Paul could also be referring to a popular false teaching of that day known as Gnosticism. Now we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about Gnostics or Gnosticism, but here's what I would tell you just in a most basic sense, although if you're familiar with Gnosticism, don't come up afterwards and say, Danny, that really isn't true. I'm just giving you a base example of Gnosticism. They believe that the world was created by a lesser God. They believe God exists, but that the one who made our world is a lesser God. He's not perfect like the one true God. Instead, he's imperfect, but apparently has enough ability to create the world. But because he's imperfect, all material existence, all of creation is flawed or evil. And the only way that you can know the true hidden divinity, I don't really know what they call him, what they might call God, but the only way you can know him or her was through mystical enlightenment. In other words, there was no clear path to know God or have a relationship with him. Instead, you had to somehow have had a vision or, or a mystical moment or something out there has enlightened you and you are in a select group of people who now knows the one true God. But apart from that, you cannot know him. Now, regardless of the specific audience or false teaching, 
this warning in particular shouldn't surprise us too much because it's still happening in our world today. The gospel is still being distorted in our communities. People are still being turned away from what is true, whether it's uh, Christian sects that uh, act like they are part of uh, Christian religion or whether it's false religions or false gods or idol worship, whatever it is, there's plenty of things out there that are trying to do their best to trick us to convince us that God is not who he says he is. We could name various spinoff religions from Christianity that claim something different than what the Bible teaches. We would call these false teachers or false doctrines. Matter of fact, even within Christianity, there are false teachers that promote a different doctrine, as Paul put it in that passage. Also, Paul had already warned the church at Ephesus that this would potentially happen, that false teachers would come in and try to take them away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, that's what he calls the false teachers, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Matter of fact, he would remind Timothy again of this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So, how do we avoid or protect ourselves against false teachers? Well, Paul tells Timothy to represent the gospel of Jesus. Like, remember what it is we believe and who it is from. Don't forget, in other words, don't forget what the Bible teaches us through Jesus, through the gospel, through the good news of God. In other words, know the Bible so you can live the Bible. He wants us to represent the gospel of Jesus. Now, let me show you what I mean in particular when we're talking about the gospel of Jesus. Once again, don't come at me and say, Danny, the gospel is so much more than what you're sharing tonight. I agree. This is a snippet, a base level of how we represent the gospel. First of all, the gospel is a relationship with Jesus that starts through faith. That's the gospel. Somebody tells you it happens any other way, that it starts down a different road, that there's another way to heaven. It is false. We know what the gospel says. It's a relationship with Jesus that starts through faith. If you look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, that's what Paul says. Nor to devote themselves to myths and in endless genealogies which promote speculations. That's the word he uses. Rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, the word speculations that Paul's writing about reminds us of the very ideas that we talked about with Gnosticism, that we can only know God through some mystical enlightenment. However, here's what we know. We know that Jesus didn't leave us with mere speculations. He left us with a clear understanding of how we can know him and follow him. You say, Danny, what do you mean? I'm reminded of just this past Sunday as we began our journey in the gospel of John. I don't know if you remember this, but here's what John wrote in chapter 1, verses 9 through 13 as a testimony to Jesus. Here's what he wrote. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But listen to this. You ready? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friends, we don't have to speculate. We can believe and receive Jesus and become children 
of God. That's what Paul's referring to when he writes the phrase, the stewardship, not speculations, the stewardship from God that is by faith. The word stewardship can be translated as purpose, scheme, or plan, as in God's plan for salvation through faith. No matter what someone ever tries to say or teach, there's only one way to God, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I don't think it's a coincidence that Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus, and Paul wrote these words to the church in Ephesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Our relationship with Jesus starts through faith. That's how we represent the gospel. But also this, don't miss this. This is the, the, the base piece to representing the gospel that I think we oftentimes fail to emulate. A relationship with Jesus starts through faith, but also a relationship with Jesus sustains through fellowship. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Look back at 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. Paul says again, the aim of our charge is love. Now, what do you think of when you think of love? Do you not think of a relationship, a fellowship? Do you not think of a family? That's what he's referring to. The aim of our charge is not speculations. No, it's faith in Jesus. It's love, fellowship that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The word for sincere is the opposite word for hypocrite. Pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. They all point to a growing relationship with Jesus. Friends, Paul's not talking about the, the fake Christian who says one thing and does another. He's talking about representing the gospel of Jesus in a way that points people to faith in Jesus and fellowship with Jesus. Ah, we could talk about this until I'm blue in the face about people who claim to know Jesus. Jesus, but have no relationship with him, no fellowship with Christ. How can we expect to represent Jesus if we don't even have a growing relationship with him ourselves personally? Faith in Christ leads always to fellowship with Christ. It's impossible to talk about faith in Jesus without fellowship with him too. Our relationship with Jesus sustains through fellowship. Now think about the implications of what Paul's writing to you. Like Danny, okay, duh, we need to represent the gospel of Jesus. But think about, think about the implications. Timothy, I want you to end these false doctrines and needless discussions about myths and endless genealogies and speculations. I want you to end all that. We don't have to speculate anymore. Represent the gospel of Jesus through faith in him. End it. Timothy, I want you to destroy vain discussions from those who swerved from their relationship with Jesus or who swerved from the gospel of Christ. Represent the gospel of Jesus through fellowship with him. Show people. Represent the gospel. It's much bigger than a religion. It's a relationship with the creator of the universe. Represent the gospel of Jesus. I love what Paul says a little bit later in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. After thinking about a relationship with Jesus starting through faith and sustaining through fellowship, after thinking about representing the gospel of Jesus, I love what he says. He says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. 
Friends, how are you representing the gospel of Jesus? Are you pointing people to faith in him? Are you pointing people to fellowship with him? How are you helping people follow Christ? He's the solution. He's the answer to our world's every need. Are you representing the gospel of Jesus? Let me show you the second thing that Paul mentions to Timothy, these words of wisdom. He wants us also not just to represent the gospel of Jesus, but he wants us to reassure the grace of Jesus. Look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1, jump down to verse 12. Listen to what Paul writes. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, you don't have to speculate. It's trustworthy. Accept it that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You know what Paul's doing here? He's sharing his testimony with Timothy, which, by the way, can I just make a little side note for a moment? I, I wonder how many times Timothy heard Paul's testimony, and here, once again, he's doing it, sharing his testimony. The point that Paul's making to Timothy and to us is that we need to reassure the grace of Jesus by telling others what he's done for us. It could be that Many false teachers and false doctrines exist because people don't trust in the grace of Jesus. Maybe they think the gospel, the good news, it's too good to be true. Maybe they think, how could Jesus love someone like me? Maybe they think, how could he save someone like me? Maybe they think, how could he use someone like me? So Paul tells Timothy to remind people of the grace offered to us from Jesus. Watch what he does. He reminds us that he was a sinner in need of Jesus. He remembers what he came from. He remembers that he wasn't perfect. He remembers there was nothing that could be done on his own. He was a sinner in need of Jesus. Look back at verse 13. Though formerly, here's his description. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent. This is the, the part of our testimony that speaks to our lives before Jesus. Paul knew firsthand about the mercy and grace of God. He was, in fact, as he says, one of the worst of sinners, but God gave him a second chance. I love what he writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 3.8. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Here's what he writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15.9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Listen, friends, this isn't just true for Paul. It's true for us. We too, everyone who follows Jesus, we were once sinners in need of Christ. You say, Danny, I'm still a sinner in need of Jesus. I agree. This is our story, not just his. All of our stories include the sinfulness we were born into. All of us must begin sharing Jesus by talking about sin. This is why Paul wrote to the church at Rome, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He was a sinner in need of Jesus. We need to share that with people to reassure the grace of Jesus. How could God save a sinner like me? Because he saved this one. 
what Paul mentions. Not only was he a sinner in need of Jesus, but he was saved from his sins by Jesus. I love what he says at the end of verse 13. He says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This this part of our testimony speaks to the moment we decided to follow Jesus, the moment we surrendered our lives to him and asked him to save us from our sins. Though we're sinners, we can receive mercy and grace from Jesus who died for our sins. I wonder when Paul's writing these words, if he thought back to his words to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter two. Do you remember these words? Here's what he wrote. And you were dead. We were dead. And the trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I wonder if Paul's thinking back to that moment. As bad as that is, Jesus didn't leave us there. Paul kept writing. He said, but God, being rich, in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Though Jesus paid for the sins of the world, Paul reminds us that we must still receive the gift of salvation. It can't be applied until it's accepted. Even in the secular realm, pardon must be accepted. Consider the case, if you never heard it, of George Wilson. In 1830, a court in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania condemned this man to death for armed robbery of the U.S. mail. And a date for George was set for his execution. However, he was pardoned by President Andrew Jackson. But for some unknown reason, Wilson refused to accept the pardon. So his lawyers demanded a stay of execution and declared, you cannot execute a man who has been pardoned. That was their plea. Evidently, they carried the case to the Supreme Court. Here, in part, is the court's decision. A pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential. And delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and if be rejected, we have discovered no power in a court to force it on him. It may be supposed that no being condemned to death would reject a pardon, but the rule must be the same in capital cases and in misdemeanors. Likewise, God's offer of salvation has to be accepted. He could paraphrase the court's decision as follows. It may be supposed that no one being condemned to a lost eternity would reject God's pardon. But if it is rejected, 
the rule must be the same. Our pardon was purchased at Calvary at infinite cost, and the only sensible response is to receive heartily God's gracious offer. But make no mistake, friends, we are all sinners in need of Jesus, and he truly has saved the world from their sins, but you can't be saved until you believe and receive and accept the pardon that's been made on your behalf. You can't have it till you surrender your life to Jesus. Now watch this. He wants us to reassure the grace of Jesus. We're sinners in need of Jesus. That's how we reassure it. We've been saved from our sins because of Jesus. That's how we reassure it. We've been sent by Jesus to serve others. That's how we reassure it. That's why he says in verse 12, I thank him. He's talking about God who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. I love it. He talks about strength and stewardship and service. This is the part of our testimony that speaks to the present and future relationship that we have with Jesus. This is about what he's been doing in our lives since we've been saved. Think just for a moment of what people around our communities could be doing for God if we would teach them the truth of God's mercy and grace. Show them what it really looks like to live in the freedom of Jesus. When was the last time you reassured someone of the grace we're offered through Christ? When was the last time you shared your story of Jesus' grace and goodness and mercy as he saved you? I love what the writer of Hebrews said when he said, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Friends, you're a priest who are you dealing gently with for the sake of Jesus? He wants us to represent the gospel of Jesus. He wants us to reassure the grace of Jesus, but this may be the best one. He wants us to reveal the glory of Jesus. I love what he says, verses 16 and 17, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look at it with me. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul makes it clear that he is now someone who is to be used for God to bring him glory in whatever way he sees fit. Our life should be the same way. God wants to use us to bring him glory. Here's how Paul told this to the church in Corinth. He said, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I know you know this, but too often Christians think that all they have to do is say a prayer or go to church or be a part of a Sunday school class or give money or whatever it is, and they'll be doing what God wants. But there's so much more to doing what God wants than just those things. God has specific plans to accomplish his purposes through all of us, and we need to make sure, like Paul, we're trying to bring glory to God always in all that we do. I love the story about David Hume and George Whitfield. You may not know much about either one of them, but one was a skeptic, the other was an incredible revival preacher. Hume was a well-known Scottish philosopher and historian in the 18th century. He was a deist. He didn't believe that the Bible was inspired or that Jesus was God's son. He was not a follower of Christ. But it's reported that he thought it was worthwhile to travel 20 miles to hear the evangelist George Whitfield preach. 
So one morning as he was headed down a street in London, he encountered a man who recognized him. The guy asked him, aren't you David Hume? Yes, he replied. Where are you going at this early hour? The man asked him. So Hume replied, I'm going to hear George Whitfield preach. A bit puzzled, the man said, you don't believe a word of what Whitfield preaches. No, Hume answered, but he does. I thought to myself, what would happen for the skeptics, for the people trapped in false doctrine, for the people led down a road that is far away from Christ? What would happen even if they don't believe what we believe? What would happen if they actually saw that we believe it? What would happen if we actually began living the same thing that we're telling? What would happen? The world could really see what we believe. What would happen if we challenged the false teachers and doctrines in our community and pointed people to Jesus? Can I just tell you something? We have that opportunity every day to point people to the truth, to point people to Jesus, just Jesus, nothing else. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Represent the gospel. They don't have to do enough or be enough or hope enough or pray enough. No, they just need Jesus. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Reassure the grace. He's waiting with arms wide open no matter where they've been. We too have been there. If he can save a sinner like me, he can save a sinner like you. Will you receive it? Will you reveal the glory that is Jesus, hallelujah, though we don't deserve it, just Jesus. What would happen? The world could see that we actually believe what we say.